I'm Taryn Ward. And I'm Stephen Jones. And this is Breaking the Feed, Social Media Beyond the Headlines. This is the second episode of a two-part series exploring online social networks before smartphones. So if you missed the first episode and are interested in social networking in the 90s, it's worth checking out before you continue. And with that, we'll get back to our question and dive straight in. Why did social networking start online in the first place? In other words, what need did it serve or what need was it designed to serve? It's fair to say that, although the answer was straightforward in the beginning, online social networking started because people were desperate to connect. The shape of that need and how it was addressed changed right along with, and in response to, societal and technological developments. The early 2000s weren't so long ago, although I still tend to think of them as 10 years ago rather than 23. Still, it's worth setting the scene. Steve, if you can remember back to 2000, 23 whole years ago, what was the mood in the UK? Okay, that's a great question. And I was really only in the UK at the very beginning of the 2000s. So for the millennium year and, uh, and 2001, I think this was, this was where Cool Britannia started to kick off. Um, we had built at enormous expense a millennium dome the total occupancy of which far exceeded the occupancy limits on any of the attractions inside, causing a great deal of consternation for any of us with children who went to visit it. And we had survived Y2K without any disasters. Thanks, I think, largely to the work of a lot of people who made sure there weren't any. Whilst it cost a lot of money and a lot of people worried about it, it wasn't all bad. My friend Matt got a job with British Gas on their Y2K team and uh, managed to work with them for the next 20 years or so. So, you know, that worked out for him. And, and that was the classic example of us spending money on something which didn't happen, and everybody afterwards saying, well, why did we spend all of that money? Well, did airplanes fall out of the sky is the answer to that, I guess. Um, it was pretty hopeful. Blair had been elected, so the UK was cool. There had been a big change in, in the way what the government was doing, or at least in the way it presented itself possibly not in policies. But then 2001 happened and, you know, 9-11 put the kibosh on all of that potential optimism pretty, pretty hard. I remember I was working at Porton Down in the UK, the Ministry of Defence at the time, and we'd been in a meeting with American colleagues discussing, you know, joint research projects. And we came out of the meeting and one of our technical staff was, was leaving work for the day. And he shouted over that somebody had driven a plane into the, in one of, one of the twin towers of New York. And like probably everybody else who heard that news for the first time that day, it didn't really, it didn't really compute. But I can still it, it picture that image in my head really clearly. It is one of those things, I guess, like where you were when Kennedy was shot. If you were alive, you're never going to forget it. And, and that was definitely one of those things. And we, we went back to the, um, to the office, went home, and then I spent the rest of the evening watching the, this devastating TV coverage of, of the subsequent second attack and then the collapse of the buildings and the aftermath. And that really changed everything. And I think there was real concern that in the UK for a brief period of time that once those weapons, once those planes were called weapons of mass destruction, everybody knew what the American response, military response to weapons of mass destruction use was. And there was a little bit of concern that missiles would fly in probably inappropriate directions. And I think initially we were quite happy that Tony Blair seemed to be putting a bit of a, a restriction on the excesses of what we expected George Bush to do. Back to connecting people, we were suddenly hosts to a bunch of Americans who could not get home because no planes were flying in or to the United States. And that lasted for days, right? And so suddenly, and with the poor communication capabilities that we had, like 
security, internet security was a big concern at this time. And we had one externally connected computer on our floor of possibly 50 or 60 people. And we didn't have internal Ministry of Defense or, or um, DSDL email addresses. We were using Hotmail addresses at this point to connect to the outside. And all of our American colleagues had to sort of queue up and use this this computer because, of course, cell phones and and uh, telephone networks in the U.S. were absolutely chocker block because of people trying to call and, and and connect with loved ones. That probably drove, to some extent, that experience probably drove for anybody who was involved in it a desire to build better communication networks because. Actually, in crises, people really need to communicate, and and you know you see that now. If anything, if ever anything happens, you know the first thing you do now is check in on Facebook or let people know that you're okay. Right? That wasn't an option back then. It was really sending emails and then desperately waiting for the responses, and not in real time because you had to get off the computer so somebody else could use their email to email their family in in the US. So yeah, that that was the start of the of the two thousands for me, um, and then we moved to Canada. I think it's really helpful for you to draw that line between 2000, we survived Y2K, yay, to 9-11. I think, you know, in very close proximity, we had these two events happen that we all felt at the time we would always remember where we were when these things happened. Y2K, the year 2000, for me, was a big deal because I was allowed to go to a party that went beyond midnight. I was young enough that that was still actually quite a big deal. And I remember where I was and who I was with and what we were doing and feeling like I'm becoming an adult just like we're, we're turning into 2000. And it was this very big deal. And when the world didn't fall apart after that, I think we did have some of this optimism from the 90s sort of, you know, we were all clinging on to that. And I think when 9-11 happened, it really did change things in a way that it's hard to explain or describe. Again, I was still I was still a young person really when this happened and it it changed everything. I think all the optimism, everything that we felt was suddenly in in question and everything felt very precarious and and what what was it going to mean? So the contrast was huge in a short period of time. Today we're going to be talking about from 2000 to 2008. There's sort of a a terrible sandwich situation here between 9-11 and the financial crisis of 2008. And so really, when we talk about this period, we're talking about what happened in between. So to go back, early 2000s, were still largely dial-up days. We had more computers. Cell phones were around. Not everybody had them, but they weren't, they weren't, it wasn't unusual to have one in the same way it was even five years before. We're talking now, just for people who don't know, about flip phones and keyboard phones, not smartphones. There were no iPhones. There's nothing even approaching an iPhone. And even if you had an iPhone, there was no network to support an iPhone, so you wouldn't have anything to do with it. And still, there was no widespread, reliable internet the way we think of it today. Yeah, it, that, that's right. I mean, if you think about it, like 1999, I think the Matrix came out. And... In that, the machines had decided that that was the peak of human civilization, right? That was it. And you had Neo on his, you know, command prompt computer at night hacking into things. That was it. And we had this vision. The rest of the movie is about this vision of what AI and what computers could eventually do for us and the simulated realities and whatever. But but the reality was using these, you know, PCs in cube farms and, you know, 
none of that was graphical or in any way interesting to look at, you know, but the contrast between the computer and then the CGI that they used to make the world work in that movie was really interesting. And I, I remember talking about the phones that they had these banana phones, the ones which like slide down. And when that phone was released in the UK, it didn't have a spring loaded mechanism and people complained and they had to put it in, which actually made the phone less reliable because of course it was another component to break. But it was, that was, that was it. That was a thing, you know? And it was the most boring film you could possibly imagine, other than it was in the film The Matrix, because there was no screen. You could, you know, remember texting people on those things? You had to press three times in order to get to the third letter, and some numbers had four letters on them, and that was even more annoying. And then it had a very rudimentary predictive text system in it. Like, communicating on those devices was miserable. It's no wonder we called people instead of texting them. Yeah. And early on, that was really all you could do. I mean, for me, for years, the first years of having a cell phone was basically for emergencies only. Um, you know, I grew up in Wisconsin where it was very, very icy and cold in the winter. So really, the purpose of me having a cell phone was if I got into a car accident to call for help. And that was really it. Um, so it's really, really come a long way. Yeah. I mean, I, we got our first, my wife and I got our first cell phones probably 98, 99. And the only, like, there were probably three people we, we called, each other and a friend each. That was about it. That was the limit of cell phone penetration. They were still pretty expensive. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And when we got to Canada, we brought our phones from the UK, but the network here wasn't as advanced as the UK one. And so they wouldn't connect. And so we didn't actually have cell phones for a while in, in Canada because we thought we didn't need them. I mean, how ridiculous <laughs> is that? It's hard to imagine. It's really hard to imagine. It is, right? Yeah. And yet during this period, we still see a lot of growth in online social networks. Friendster came out in 2002 with a similar concept to Six Degrees, but dubbed Circle of Friends. Again, this Circle of Friends idea. It focused on the common bonds of discovery and maintenance and uh, similar features to some online data sites. And within a year, there were 3 million registered users, which when you consider the pool of potential people to join. It was actually really good. And I think yeah, the, that, that phrase in there, like at maintenance of friendships, is was one of the things that was, was really important, right? It made it easy and quick to just, you know, have these easy, soft touch points with friends. Yeah. And I think other other networks would pick up on that later on. I learned recently that actually it was designed to compete with Match.com. The idea was that friends of friends would make better romantic partners than perfect strangers. And so that was really one of the driving ideas behind it. Isn't that fascinating? And I mean, I, I was reading recently statistics for, for dating sites online, and they're like, they're really not very successful. And, and maybe that is, but I mean, it, I guess it depends on what sort of relationship you want. Some are successful for some things. But like long-term partnerships, it turns out not so much. And, and why not? I mean, it's quite a good idea, right? It, Friends of your friends are people you're likely to have something in common with. I, but I didn't know that. That's absolutely amazing. Yeah, it's it's really interesting, right? And it, it makes a lot of sense. And I think we've seen various iterations on this idea since then. Um, unfortunately, one of the problems they had is they moved very quickly from sort of an organic growth model to rapid growth thanks to some unexpected, I think unexpected media coverage. So it really upset the community balance. So something that had been really about friends and friends and sort of growing that way, all of a sudden there were all these new people on the network and there were some technological challenges with that, but it also really shifted the community away from being a place for people you knew 
to being a place where there were there were lots of strangers. Um, and in fact, in 2003, so so not long after that, we saw LinkedIn for the first time. And for those of you who don't know, LinkedIn is actually not this new phenomenon that happened a few years ago. Um, I think it's more popular than ever, and somehow it's become a cool thing to do. But back in 2003, it was not. It was a networking resource for business people. And, and the idea right from the beginning was about connecting professionals in particular and making it about only connecting with people you were really, you had some sort of trusting relationship in. So endorsements for skills and things like that. So in a way, if you think about what happened with Friendster and, and where things went wrong, LinkedIn in a lot of ways was designed to address that. Yeah, and, and I mean, I didn't get a LinkedIn account in 2003 because I was not that sort of connected, but I got one pretty soon afterwards. And and um, at that time, I was traveling a lot on for work and meeting a lot of people from the UK and the US, largely in government. And LinkedIn was sort of a bit of a serious network that, you know, you met people at these meetings, you had something in common or a common problem that you wanted to work on. And, and you know, you would sh- sort of connect with them online. It was definitely nothing like it is today, but was sort of like served that very specific purpose. And, you know, you, you would, you were only, absolutely, you were only connected with people that you had a professional connection with. And I guess at that time, we certainly didn't view it as a way to get employed, which is definitely what it's become now to search for and to find jobs. Yeah, it was, it was quite a new and, uh, and different sort of thing. Definitely not in any way cool. (laughs) <laughs> that was, you know, partially by design. So so one thing that I think is really fascinating is the founders of LinkedIn, Friendster, and some of the other networks popular then like Rise and Tribe were personally and professionally connected. So they were never designed to compete directly with each other. They They all sort of viewed this as a way that they could all coexist and support each other. And the idea was, I think, we would all be online connecting in this, these various ways and using different networks to connect for different reasons or different seasons um, and in different circumstances. Yeah, it's a really interesting idea. And I mean, I think with the rise of multiple networks now, niche ones, maybe we're going to see that sort of develop organically over over time. It'd be really interesting to work out and see what, what, what happens and, and to talk about it on this show. Can I just interrupt to say one thing? I think it would be great to see a move back towards this and away from cage matches. <laughs> um, who would win? Who's your money on if that were ever to happen, Taryn? My money is on it never happening. Oh, well, that is the good money. It is interesting. That's the state of affairs for two of the richest men in the world. We solve our disp- disputes by cage fighting. It tells you a lot about the networks they manage, doesn't it? Yes. We should not expect better. <laughs> It's true. And and how far we've come from this core idea of more connection and connecting with each other. Um, when even the founders, the whole idea was connecting with each other personally and professionally. And, and now we're sort of in this strange place where I, I don't even know what to call it other than a cage mesh. I mean, I'm a little bit sorry, to be honest. I mean, whilst I deplore the behavior, I'm a little bit sorry we're not going to see it because... <laughs> Again, a bit like JFK in 9-11, you would never forget where you were and what you were doing when you saw Elon fight Mark Zuckerberg in a cage. So who do you think would win? I mean, if the cage collapsed on them, everyone, 
But I mean, my money's on my money's on Mark because he seems to be pretty confident. I mean, he he seems he seems to be you know the one who's keener for this to happen. And Elon's perhaps not in as good a shape as he needs to be to to take on Mark, who's who's you know younger and um, can rely on his uh, Android skeleton to protect him from harm. Do you think he's paying Elon Musk to make him look competent? Because some of this, <laughs> I, I don't think Mark Zuckerberg has ever been as well liked is he is right now watching this whole thing play out. He looks like the grown-up. Well, I mean, someone needs to pay Elon because he's lost an awful lot of money buying Twitter <laughs> and turning it into X. Yeah, I think he's he's probably still in pretty good shape. I wouldn't mind exchanging. <laughs> I, yeah, well, let's be honest. <laughs> we would be happy with the money he's lost, so let alone the money he still has. It's true. Uh, back to social networks of the early 2000s and, and something which is unlike Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk was at the time Cool, which was MySpace, which came out in 2003 and was really focused on the young adult demographic, which at this time, I have to say, was probably not me. I think I was probably about 35 at this point and I was not targeted and marketed to me. Um, it was designed to compete with Friendster and to attract people who left Friendster. It was really popular with teens who had never used Friendster and, and MySpace actually changed their policy, right, to, to allow minors to uh, to join. Between 2005 and 2009, remarkably, it was the largest network in the world. Taryn, you were a young adult at the time. Were you a MySpace fan? I was. Um, not right away in 2003, but definitely when it was at its peak between 2005 and 2009. Um, and it was great for what it was. You could search for people, customize your profile, it was almost like having your own personal website, your own little corner of the web that was was just for you. You could choose colors, designs, fonts, and music. You didn't have to be super creative to make something that, that felt creative and it felt like you were sharing a little bit of who you were um, and how you saw the world with, with everyone. The, the consequence of that, of course, is that each profile could be really unique, not just in color and design, but even the outlay of the page. So there was a real lack of uniformity. Advantages and disadvantages to that, but you couldn't very easily click from one page to another and find exactly the same information in the same spot. That's interesting. When we've been talking to people about Bright, one of the things that a lot of people have asked for, interestingly enough, was was the ability to customize the look of their profile page and how they present themselves to the world. But do you think that that sort of MySpace sort of like fluidity and how you could present that that page impacted their their branding and success long term, or it impacted their people's ability to navigate the, those pages and and was detrimental. Or, I mean, what was the balance? I like I said, I I never really used this this network. I think that's a great question. I don't know exactly, but I think Facebook coming out a year later. So Facebook launched sort of privately in two thousand four. So it launched as a Harvard only network and remained specifically limited to campuses. And then um, I think high school students came next. So it wasn't until 2006 that it was available to everyone. And I think there was a really clear contrast here. So Facebook was very uniform. It was very simple in the early days. You didn't really have to do anything or put anything into it to create a profile. You, you just you could upload a photo or not. For a long time, I had no photo. I took a lot of flack for that. But the point was, you didn't have to show anything about yourself at all. You could just have your name or you could have a very simple quote. 
Whereas MySpace, I think sort of the point of it was to give a little bit more of yourself. And I think probably the results speak for themselves, at least in the time period we're talking about. Yeah, that's right. It's it's interesting, isn't it? But it's also interesting that people are still, some people still hanker after being able to customize their the way they, they're presented on online. It's going to be an interesting balance for us to try and thread that needle. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the pendulum does swing in some of these cases. So it may just be that it's time, you know, people people want this back, want this ability back, and they're willing to put in that little bit of extra effort if they can control what is presented in, in the format. I think we'll have to see from a technology standpoint, it's a little bit more complicated to do that from an app than it is on a web page. It's not insurmountable, but I think just as a reminder, in 2003 and 2004, people were not using MySpace or Facebook on a phone. It wasn't an app. It was largely web-based. Yeah, of course. And the idea of people using social media on the computer now is a bit alien to, well, anybody under the age of 35, probably. Yeah, exactly. So speaking of Facebook, 2004 launch, we've covered that. Currently, the estimate is 1.3 billion active users, which is really incredible, even if you allow for the fact that some of these accounts are probably not truly separate accounts. They may not belong to real people. It's still a staggering number. It is. We all know um, the story of Facebook, but it's uh, worth a quick reminder if you didn't watch The Social Network and you haven't watched um, any of the documentaries on uh, how it was founded. But um, Facebook started uh, as a way to rank how attractive young women at Harvard were, as if frat boys in the early 2000s needed any other ways to objectify women. We think about the why, and we can probably imagine a link between this uh, and wanting to connect with people. But there's also a big disconnect between that purpose um, and uh, the, the purpose of these other early online social networks. Uh, you know, I think that's true from the things you said about how LinkedIn started and the willingness of these other networks to work together and to connect people through different spheres of their lives. That that's a big there's a big gulf between those lofty goals and wanting a way to rate how cute the girls at Harvard are, which is, let's face it, not a winning strategy today. That's got me too written all over it. As you were talking about this, it struck me that. Today, we talk about disruption as a great thing. We really, that, that word gets thrown around and to be a disruptor is this, this great badge of honor. Um, but actually, it's, it doesn't always shake out quite that way. It's not always nece necessarily the case that the person doing the disrupting is doing it for the best reasons. And sometimes the outcome isn't necessarily what we would want. And this whole move fast and break things ethos that has really sort of become part of how we see the world, I think really started with this launch in 2004. Yeah. I mean, it turns out that some of the things that you break are, are the mental health of teenagers and the fabric of society, if you follow that to its natural conclusion. And, and those are not things that we wanted broken. We're going to get into this a lot more during the, the series of podcasts, but I mean, it is a sobering thought that the biggest social network in the world, both in terms of the money that it makes and the number of members that it has, whichever way you count them, started as a way for boys to objectify women. I mean, we really didn't need another way to do that. 
and and these people are still and will for the foreseeable future continue to run that network and make decisions based on their worldview, which is obviously quite different from yours and mine. Yeah, unfortunately, I think that's true. Um, Google, who um, perhaps now aren't really thought of as being in the social game, released Google Plus in 2007, which again, I was not cool enough to use. And um, that had features like uh, Hangouts for, for live video chats um, off the back of success of, of Gchat, which also I was not cool enough to use. Um, and that allowed users to have um, to live chats within their email ecosystem. Did you use this, Taryn? I did. I was one of the cool kids for once. I actually started using Gmail before this. I can't remember if 2007, you still needed an invite. But when I started using Gmail, you had to be invited by somebody who was already using it, um, which felt very special and and cool. So you really did feel like you were, you know, you were part of something. But I used Gchat a lot. In fact, a lot more than I should have when I was in law school. It was very easy to sort of keep it open over emails and to have these sort of side conversations. Always about torts and civil procedure, of course. But it was a way of sort of live chatting when you were somewhere where you couldn't live chat, partially because I think many of us had become addicted to AOL Instant Messenger and or AIM and similar similar technologies. So we wanted to be connected more and more often. Yeah. And let's remember that the first iPhone, which let's face it, in terms of spec was a bit rubbish, was released in 2007. And, and there's no way that you could have used it to, um, to do these sort of things. So we really were still doing this on our laptops. And I'm not sure that being one of the cool kids and discussing torts are mutually compatible. I'm just going to say that for the rest of us, Taryn. Well, a little secret between you and me, we weren't just discussing torts. Um, as much as if my parents are listening to this, we absolutely were. I was I was making good use of my time in law school, but, but there were other conversations happening, as I'm sure you can imagine. Yes. I'm glad to hear it because that troubled me for a, for a second there. I'm... So uh, a quick recap. Um, web-based social networking was different in a, in a few ways. They were designed to provide comprehensive social networking experience, possibly because some of the design limitations of the technology of the time. Some people used real names, some people used pseudonyms, but but no one was constantly sharing photos or videos of their personal lives. It wasn't convenient. You didn't have the, the upload and download speed for that type of interaction. There wasn't the storage. And, you know, it we didn't have phones. You were using your laptop. You didn't have a camera. If you wanted to upload something, you had to take a picture with a camera, connect it to your computer, upload it, track the like. It was just work, right? And and no one wants work. So um, yeah, webcam in very grainy 640 uh, pixel pictures were, were probably the the limit of of how we were communicating with people with video, and only if you were fortunate to have a good connection. Right. The technology meant you had to be on your computer to use any of these systems. So although doom scrolling was an option in theory, it was a lot less practical, not just because of content limitations, but because you would have to do it mostly behind a desk. We just weren't online constantly, and there was no expectation that we would be. However, the stage was set through all these things for social media in the age of smartphones, just in time for Apple's launch in 2007 of the iPhone which was just around the corner. We sort of take this through 2008 because although the iPhone was released in 2007, as you rightly point out, Steve, not many people had it. And even those who did, the functionality was so limited. It is, It was really nothing like the iPhone that I have sitting on my desk right now. 
So next time we'll look at how the release of the iPhone and the more widespread use of smartphones generally change social media and also consider how the widespread use of social media may have influenced the use and development of smartphones. Then we'll discuss the influence TikTok in particular has had on social media, smartphone use, and more broadly in our society. In the meantime, we'll post a transcript of this episode with references on our website. You can find this and more information about us at thebrightapp.com. And if you'd like to take a deeper dive into the earliest online social networks, check out our episode on early internet socials. Until next time, I'm Stephen Jones. And I'm Taryn Ward. Thank you for joining us for Breaking the Feed, social media beyond the headlines. Mm-hmm.